0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the Air. Right on, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to 1 and repeated the following Sunday at 11 a.m. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere with its staff who entice me with Ooh, look! Have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this with its cruelly-situated right-at-the-front-so-you-trip-over-at-New-Zealand-new-releases table and worst of all, worst of all with the irresistible treasures in Book lovers' Corner The University Bookshop is evil You have been warned Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by the great team at the University Bookshop. Join us for the next hour as we get to delve into that wonderful world of books, the perfect place to be in the summer. I have the pleasure of interviewing Bronwyn Wiley-Gibb, who is the book buyer in. an utter book nutter I'll call her this time, a, a book connoisseur, someone who loves books and just lives and breathes book. And she's the um, book buyer from the University Bookshop. And a couple of times a year we usually have a lovely catch up about the books she's been reading and what I've been reading so I'm very much looking forward to having a chat with Bronwyn again today. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm jolly fine, especially now that I'm getting to have a lovely book chat. So for our listeners out there, i um, Hopefully they got lots of books over Christmas time and they might have read all their Christmas books. Um, so now it's that time to be thinking about summer reading and and what you might be wanting to read for summer
1: and just even
0: really cool books that you've read in the last year. So what have you been reading?
1: Okay, well one of my very favourite books from the last year was is called Eloquence of the Sardine and it's by <laughs> a man called Bill Francois who is French and it's, so it's been translated from the French and he is a physicist by profession, but he is obsessed with and loves the sea and creatures in the sea. And Eloquence of the Sardine is it's quite a small book, but it's, it's fabulous. It's it's essays about various creatures that live in the sea and, and how 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 we interact with them and and what they their place in this in, in the ecology of the ocean. Um and it's just it's just wonderful. One of the most interesting things was he explained because he's a physicist. He was really good at explaining this about how when you put your head under the water in the sea, you're hearing all the sounds that are in the sea that are being made by various creatures. And one of the things he talks about is there's a there's a a, a space in the sea between um, the the water that sunlight reaches through, and then when the water that hits the water that sunlight no longer goes through, no longer reaches down to that depth, and there's this, there's a this, this sort of five or six kilometer um, space in the sea, and if whales sing in that in that space because of of the nature of the water. Um, Their songs are heard for thousands of miles, which is why they're able to communicate with each other and find each other in these, because there's not very many of them in these giant oceans around the world. And that when you put your head underwater, when you know you're down at St. Clair, you're hearing those whale songs
0: it 's amazing, and I mean yeah. I, I love me an essay for a start, yes. but you know something that 's very much you know, about the water that sounds amazing, and he sounds like he 's a bit of a storyteller as well as a, a physicist
1: yes, you know, fascinating and interesting in his slight memoir he he talks about why he loves the sea so much and what got him so interested in the sea um, i he doesn 't say much about why he ends up being a physicist as opposed to. Um, a marine biologist, um, but he knows his stuff, and and it's wonderful writing, and it is, you know, it could be called the eloquence of Bill Francois as much as the eloquence of the sardine. And when he's talking about the eloquence of the sardine, what he's talking about is those amazing things that you see on sometimes on um, nature programs or on shop, on things on YouTube um, of the sardines swirling and all and a big. Uh, they're a school, aren't they? I was going to say a flock, but that's birds. Um, a, a school of study and how they all move mm. and, and and what it is that they are receiving from each other's body movements and, and the way that light flashes off their scales that makes them move in in this amazing way, which to us looks like they they're using one mind to move with, but in fact they're just reading the information from the from the fish around them, and so they all move in these incredible ways. And um, yeah, it, it was just the most amazing read. And and I read it all in one go, and it was fascinating. But I think you could read two or three or dip in and out of it and just read different things. And yeah, very sort. Of, it felt it felt like something we should read in the New Zealand summer.
0: Mm. <laughs> this is one of the dangers of talking with you about books, because now I'm writing that down on my. I must go and buy that list because yeah. yeah. It's well, fantastic. Um, well, this this is a non-fiction book, so I'll talk a wee bit about um, one of the non-fiction books that I've just picked up and started reading. Um, it's called Murder Isn't Easy, The Forensics of Agatha Christie by um, Carla Valentine. So, I mean, I I love you no know, Marsh, Agatha Christie, that sort of era of writer, and so these women... Um, they wrote these amazing, huge numbers, huge, huge numbers of, of detective books. Uh, but there was a lot of science behind it. Um, and so Carla Valentine, who um, her background is, she is a, or she's the technical director of the pathology museum, a very famous one. Um, so she was, wanted to have a look at the um, all the forensics that Agatha Christie used, because I had read some other books about the poisons, because you know we, we all know she poisoned a lot of people off, because. She was a, a, a chemist back in the day, um, so she had that that, that that knowledge. But this book is, you know, looking at the, the much broader. Um, and she was a bit of a trailblazer too. I learnt very early on in the piece that she's the first person credited to use the phrase "the scene of the crime" um, back in a book called Murder on the Links in the nineteen twenties. So there you go, a bit of a trailblazer. But yes, it's a very, really really interesting so far, and I can't wait to get further into it.
1: That, that sounds really yeah. I I like those those. Golden Age crime queens as well, and um, we've talked before about about looking at the science and the forensics that they're using, um, because w- they would be amazed at what at what we know now and what and what can be done forensically and and worked out now. And sometimes when you're reading them, you do think, oh, not only to, only wouldn't it be great if everybody had a phone and they could just ring each other when they needed to, but wouldn't it be great if 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 they had this more than just um, Blood type and um, and fingertip, you know, fingerprint analysis. Uh, I I am uh, look you've done it to me too. I'm putting it on my list of what to read as well. Yes,
0: and here we go to prove that we're a bad influence on each other in <laughs> the book world. That's that's a
1: good thing. Mm-hmm. So we'll borrow it. From you. <laughs> yeah. And
0: so, what other uh, interesting things have you been reading? Well,
1: there's a couple of books which I think they're not particularly summary, but they they you could read them now. I think. I think they're, they're two books about the night, and they they play off each other because they're about they're sort of about opposite things. One is called The Dark, and it's it's a crime. It's crime, and it's a, it's a crime novel by um, Houghton, um and it's about a crime that takes place on a um, research station in Antarctica and um, a doctor is flown in to replace a doctor who has died. She's flown in on the last flight to come in in the summertime um, with the light being available. And she flies in, and a week later, darkness descends and the long Antarctic winter starts. And she's in this place with several people who are quite unusual and and she's not at all sure about them. And she's very aware that... Um, Technology is what was keeping them alive because you know outside is just snow and ice and darkness. And um, then she starts to realize that there are things going on within the research station and that bad things are going to happen. And um, yeah, it's it, it's it's really good and it, it creeped me out enough that I actually wanted to read it during the day. I, I so so I think I think a warm summer's day reading about Antarctica um, would be and. and nefarious goings on would be fantastic and the other one is called after dark walking into the nights of aotearoa and and that's by Annette lees and that is about nighttime in new zealand basically and and the animals um and the um plants and that that live and and have have their lives very much in the in the nighttime as opposed to the daytime um so there's a bit of um Natural history going on. Um, there's a bit of um, memoir going on, and it talks about her own going out walking at night, and and she's done that several times, and she's often done some tramps at night. She talks to people who go skiing at night, which I think sounds really scary. It sounds mad. Yeah, yeah, just just incredible stuff. Um, because it's never it's never solid dark. There's starshine and moonshine, and people have they've got and. She's got a headlamp that she wears as well, and it's just it's just wonderful, like she talks about she goes with her son and they are in I think they're in Whangarei, and they they go out they start walking at eleven thirty at night and they walk through till about six o'clock in the morning, and they have a picnic in the dark at, and everything seems more special and more interesting, and she goes on, she goes into the bush with people and they're counting bats, they're doing a bat census um, and it's it's just amazing, and that one I would recommend reading at night. And perhaps even sitting outside with your own headlamp on and and just enjoying being outside and and how that feels and and especially down here in in the deep south, it's best to do that night sitting or night walking perhaps in the summer rather than um even though we have short nights and she's really interesting about how various peoples have used the stars to navigate to get to new zealand um and about how night falls across New Zealand because twilight is actually split into three types of twilight, which I didn't know. And it's to do with the degrees that the sun has gone down behind the um, behind the horizon. And there's also, they call that time in the... The reverse process in the morning is also called twilight. So you have civil twilight, astronomical twilight and navigational twilight.
0: Civil, so it's well-behaved twilight. Well,
1: exactly, yes, very polite. And, and when... When when twilight when sunset happens in New Zealand it, h- it hits Gisborne um, coming over that that curve hits 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 Gisborne seventeen minutes later it hits. New Plymouth, and that's the widest point across New Zealand. And it only takes 17 minutes for that, because we're so long and thin, Mm. for that to happen. And so we all experience the country sort of experiences it all at once, which is an interesting process. Yeah.
0: Well, it's very funny that you talked about the first book, The Dark, because after you told me a bit about that book in
1: the university
0: bookshop, I went and brought
2: it. Oh, good. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Bad influence and all. I haven't. I haven't read it yet, but I'm very much looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. And the second one, the dark in New Zealand. It sounds like you know, torch under under the blankets too. Yeah. that could be good because I don't know about going outside.
1: Well, I know she makes it sound really interesting, and and just being out there and being in the quiet of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I thought I thought it was really interesting that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, one of the books I'm looking forward to reading that I um, may have gifted to one of my children so that I could <clears throat> read it after them is one called um, The Apollo Murders by Chris Hadfield. And you know, he is the Canadian astronaut that we all probably fondly remember playing guitar and, and singing David Bowie songs from space um, to, to everyone. So he has written this um, Crime fiction novel, essentially, oh. um, set in space and and around a top secret mission to the moon back in the nineteen seventy three and the Cold War. So I'm looking forward to reading that because you know if anyone would know the details and the difficulties of doing things in space, mm. it, it would be that man.
1: Yeah, and and it's a bit like the Antarctic one. Because the, the queens of crime always wrote these right about um, those closed room, locked room mysteries, and then Antarctica is kind of like a, a locked continent mystery. But crime taking place on the space station—that's that's a whole that's a whole other <laughs> that's a whole other form of isolation, really. Yeah, and I think after the years that we've had, or the years that we've had, we're all kind of interested in isolation and how we behave mm. around us and things. Yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. Yes. So what else have you um, been intrigued
0: with or like the look of coming up? Um,
1: there's a new um, Margaret Atwood coming up, e- Essays. Ooh. Yeah, so so that, that that will be around sort of January, February, I think. I think that that's when it's due. And um, I, I'm really interested in that because she is so interesting. She's so on point about a number of things and able to dissect things really clearly and let, let you know exactly what's going on. Um and I also am interested in a um book that's coming out um the lobster's tale the um the Chris Price book because I think it would work in with my investigation of things oceanish and yeah, I, I, which is not not something I thought I was interested in, but it turns turns out I am.
0: That's yeah. a, that's a very between the sardines and the and the lobsters tails. Yes. That's a, that's a very summery theme.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, uh, I feel like reading it down in a, on a rocky shore somewhere, uh, with the suggestion that they could come in, um, with your feet in its little tidal pool. Yeah, exactly. And and the one that I have. Um, on my pile to read is is the uh, Cloud Cookie Land mm. by Anthony Doerr, which is um, fantastic. It looks fantastic, and I believe it's set in three different times. It's set in during the um, the run up to the first successful siege of Constantinople in the fifteenth century, and then it's set in present day Idaho, and then it's set in a couple of hundred years, I think, in a um, a space ship going. To a, a new planet uh, that where humans can survive, that's quite an interesting premise. Yeah, and and I was talking to somebody else who had read it, and they said that the 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 you don't know when you turn when you turn the page and you start a new chapter, you don't know which which bit of the story you're in. And he and he works that really well. That and and it's all about storytelling because what's common through all these is that. He's he's invented. Uh, Door the author has invented a lost book um, that is known about from other books, and and parts of it are known about um, because, in the same way as, as we as there really are lost books from ancient Greece that that we know existed, and other people have written about them, so we know bits and pieces about them, but we don't have the actual book. So he's got this he's got this book that he's invented that all these characters in all these different places are are aware of and know about and why storytelling is important in all these different places. And times and and what it does for people and why why it's important that we tell stories and read stories. Yeah,
0: I can't wait to read that. Um, youngest son has just finished reading it oh. and he said it was absolutely fantastic. He really really enjoyed it. So yeah. it's it's sitting on the dining room table at the moment, <laughs> waiting to be snaffled by the next person in the house.
1: Yeah, no, I I I understand. My my pile doesn't ever seem to get smaller. Which is just just exhausting, really. Yeah, yeah.
0: No. Well, for those who enjoy a little bit of time travel, um, Diana Gabaldone has her latest yes. book out in the uh, Outlander series, Go Tell the Bees That I Am Gone. Yes. So I know um, people are always waiting, waiting, waiting for her to write the next one, um, putting all that pressure on the poor woman because they're very big novels. Yes,
1: they uh, are. Um, I have never been a particular fan of hers, but I know lots of people who are, um, and with well, the thing that comes through that I do know about her is her research is impeccable, and she, when she when she references things and talks about things, you know that she's she's gone right back to the original sources, and and that's that's why people love them so much. It's really good historical writing, yeah, yeah.
0: and just a great storyteller. I mean, I I fell in love with um you know the, the character, uh, Claire... Fraser way back in that first book, just because mm. she was such an intrepid woman, and at that stage was the same age as mm. me. So I sort of I followed the series all the way uh, mm. along. So anxious, you know, anticipating reading the next book, and also had the pleasure of interviewing her for the Write On Radio Show oh, many yes. years ago, and she was amazing. She and her, um, she could remember all the characters. You know, she's got all these huge cast of characters across many novels, mm. and her m- just memory of everything was amazing. Mm.
1: Yeah, I, I I think that she's. Well worth reading, and the thing about it, you can pick it up and just read the one that's just been released. But then you've got all this backlist to read, and mm. and this the, and they've turned it into a really good series, I believe. I haven't seen it on TV, but I believe that there's a there's a great Outlander has been turned into a, mm. a fantastic series, and people are very keen on it.
0: Yes, I haven't I haven't watched the series probably because I've just so embedded in the books, I haven't
1: been able to quite yet. One I know, day, I know you sort. Of, you, sometimes it's it's hard to to watch the series when you love a book so much, and like when I find that if I go to see a movie that's based on a book, um, I have to think of them as two completely different um, things and, and not think about them as, as the same thing at all. It's the only way to get through it, really. Yes. Mm. Yeah, and I must tell you about Conversatio um, in the company of bees. I, I I gave that to a family member, and I'm once like you. I'm planning to borrow it back, um, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's come, it comes out from – it's. Anne Noble um, with a couple of other women and it comes out from um, Massey University Press and it's about Anne Noble's practice. She's a photographer ab- around bees and um, it's it's amazing. There's all sorts of different parts to it. There's things about the, her, the photography she does and, and what that means but there's also... Chapters on the history of beekeeping and and how people have to them. And Then there's another chapter on why it's so dangerous that we're killing bees off as fast as we are. Um, it's beautiful, and the secret is it's got this lovely cloth cover, and you can take the cloth cover off and you can see the stunning binding of the book, which has been so. It's a real book as object, book as art object. Um, it's it's stunningly beautiful, and one of the one of the images in it is. Um, Somebody rang me up to tell me this. They were so amazed when they read it in the book. Um, one of the images is her hand with a um, with the wing, the wings uh, that have been shed that she collected from in a hive, and they're on her hand. And what she's done is she's wound a piece of um, phot- photographic film around it and exposed it to the light. So it's it's this mm. really interest. She's doing some really interesting things, and she's taking some beautiful photos of people standing and watching the exhibition hive where people, you know, you can have an exhibition hive inside and see how the bees behave. And it's her photos of people's faces as they're watching what's happening and when they see it for the first time, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, Conversatio. Yes,
0: I'm thinking that one might be finding its way to our home as well. This is a really dangerous conversation to be having. Well,
1: you know, I I like to spread the book, love. (laughs)
0: Yes. Well the um another book that's sort of like burning a hot spot in my to be read pile, um, is Val McDermid's new book, nineteen seventy nine, because oh, it's yes. it's the first one in a, a series of books that's gonna be um covering five decades mm-hmm. essentially. And she's got a young reporter, um Ali Burns, who is in Glasgow. And so in this first book, you know, she's young and back in the nineteen seventies Battling all the sexism and racism and misogyny and everything that was happening in that time, as, as well as the crime. So, mm. I'm looking forward to reading the book just from the element of the you know the book in itself and, and the crime, but also really looking forward over the series to seeing how 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 this this reporter progresses, um, matures, yes. or you know, adventures over the decades.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, she's always worth reading because she the way she makes me think a bit of um, Sarah Paretsky because of the way that she deals with real social issues and and how society works and how that creates situations where people do bad things yeah i i think that she's interesting there. and and james lee burke is a bit like that as well with his book set in louisiana that that's uh, often people are surrounded by a structure that is so inimical to them that that they're pushed into doing things that perhaps they wouldn't do otherwise if, if life was a bit fairer. <laughs>
0: and James Lee Burke's another one on my
1: to-be-read pile. Yes, yeah, he, he's he's always on the to-be-read pile. I, I'm i reading backwards through him at the moment, which, which is kind of interesting.
0: We've probably got time for a comment on one
1: more book. Um, all right, I am really wanting to cook some things out of Nigel Slater's new book, The Cook's Book, um, which... I really like his cooking, and this is a collection. It feels—I don't know whether he—it feels sort of like he may well do another cookbook but it feels like this is his his collection of the two hundred best recipes that he has done over all his career. And and he's just so good about writing about and the introductions to to the recipes and that sort of thing. Um, I've been reading through it like a like it was a novel, and yeah, I, I've I've want to do some cooking in these long summer evenings. And have people around and, and enjoy enjoy it. That that's, I think that would be interesting. There's some remarkable cookbooks out this this for Christmas, and so yeah, this was one that I decided I would treat myself to. <laughs> and that's
0: the perfect way to end up yeah. a, a, a talk about books is by bringing food into it. It's the best <laughs> of all worlds: food and books. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Robin, for coming on the show again and talking books. Like I said, we can happily talk books for hours, and I suspect that this is going to be a slightly expensive talk for me because I think I'm going to be having to go and purchase one or two of those
1: it's been a pleasure talking with you again nice to see you and um, you're always welcome at the bookshop Vanda (laughs) as is everybody (laughs) thank you
0: is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just smell those books and breathe atmosphere. With its staff who entice me with, oh look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand New Releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Welcome back, you're listening to Otago Access Radio and Write On with Van de Simon, the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by the great team at the University Bookshop. Now for the next part of the show we're going to be taking a wee blast from the past back to August and my interview with Dunedin writer Michelle Alvey, who is a poet, short story and flash fiction writer. Enjoy. Michelle Alvey is a writer, editor, online creative writing teacher and a powerhouse dynamo behind the National Flash Fiction Day and the international literary journal Flash Frontier, an adventure in short fiction. She's recently released her collection of flash fiction, The Other Side of Better. Michelle, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you very much. Nice to be here.
0: Now, I thought we'd actually start off because, you know, I've mentioned this word flash fiction, which is a form of short fiction. So I just wondering if, first off, you could explain to our listeners, you know, The differences between short stories, flash fiction, and even micro-fiction.
3: Yes. Um, Well, the first starting point is about the length and the kind of story you're telling in a very small space. So a short story can be somewhere like 2,000 to 5,000 or even 10,000 words. Flash fiction comes in at under 1,000. 1,000 is really the top end of it. So it's really a matter of telling a story in a compressed space And the shorter you get, strangely enough, the harder it is because you have to really figure out what to leave out. A typical flash fiction story might be around 500 words, even 700 words, and then the shorter ones down to 400, 300, or even 200 are really compressed. So they're often a scene that is very well uh, illustrated by both what's said and what's not said, but there has to be something that's still a narrative arc. So it can't just be a scene between two people. There has to be something that builds tension and layering and suspense and then maybe resolution and maybe not. Um, The very short form, the micro, is usually around 100 words, and that's just a much tighter space in which to write a small story. So it's really just incremental in terms of the size and then what you do with it, is really up to you because there's a lot of room for experimenting in that form. Because we often see in competitions and things like that, they will stipulate
0: stipulate a, a, a word limit that you have to work within. You know, whether it's 100 words or 300 words. Um, so, is that part of that whole competition side of things?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. The competitions always have the word limit as sort of the first thing because that is the guiding framework. But within that framework, you can really experiment and do whatever you want. So a 300-word story, which is what we use for the National Flash Fiction Day competition, might actually feel quite long if it's, for example, broken up into many small sections with a lot of breathing space in between. And depending on how you read that, you know that could be a quite a long read uh, in terms of the time it takes. Whereas something that's written breathlessly with very little punctuation all in one go that might read much faster. So it's really quite fun to see what people will do with something like 300 words. But that word count is always what's what's conditioned at the top of any competition or a writing journal. At Flash Frontier, uh, the limit is usually 250 words. So it's Mm -hmm. even smaller. Because I know um, I had the pleasure of
0: being attending the National Flash Fiction Day finals event that we had here in Dunedin, which was an amazing evening. And there, the variety... And like you say, and the differences in pace and story that people were able to come up with within them, what you
3: think would be a very confined space. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the stories that we heard on that night, you're right. They really did demonstrate it. Um, Susan Wardell's piece, when she read it, and that was the winning story this year, which happened to be in Dunedin, um, it feels like a much longer story when you, when you contemplate everything that's going on in that piece of writing. Mm. And I mean, I've had a little
0: experience with micro, micro fiction. My only moment of glory when I've ever won anything was an ODT six word. Oh, story fantastic. Do you remember your story? I did. It was Had Babies, it Drove Me to Crime. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's <laughs> really great. Being given a crime your fiction, writer. Exactly. Given your history, that's really great. <laughs> really funny. Now, um, we've talked about. Flash fiction being short, but the other thing that strikes me, particularly when reading your collection, The Other Side of Beta, is that there's almost an intersection between prose and poetry with flexion, flash fiction. Is it
3: a kind of a hybrid? I think it is. I think the fact that it has that confining space leads people to uh, explore at the edges, at the boundaries so people who really love the small form are always looking at how to experiment more, how to push it a little bit further. And in this collection, it's actually interesting. We deliberately didn't write on the cover. You know, often there will be a subheader that says short stories mm-hmm. or, you know, a collection of poetry. Or, And in this case, we decided not to call it anything because it's really hard to label because it is in that hybrid category where it's situated with obviously some stories that are very small stories, Some of them are more poetic in terms of their voice. In this collection, there's also an overarching character who appears throughout the collection. So she has her own storyline, which carries all the way through, which makes it it has some novelistic elements, even in the small stories. So that kind of playing with what you can do, even in a collection, and then how the stories also interact with each other, sometimes they're in conversation with each other, sometimes one story on down the line might be responding to something a little bit earlier on that was referenced. So that's how a collection in this hybrid form sort of comes together and, yeah, it was hard for me to call it just flash fiction because it's not purely flash fiction. It's kind of wide ranging, a A little bit, yeah, a little bit outside the bounds, perhaps. And that actually preempts a question I was going to ask
0: later in the Mm. interview, but Mm. um, you've brought it up now is, you know, how do you know as the writer that you have enough material for a collection? And is it a I'm going to write a collection, herefore I shall write, or gosh, I've got all this stuff and I'm not quite sure how it links up. How can I turn it into something? How was
3: that for you? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. And for me, it actually varies from collection to collection. So, and the way that I'm I'm thinking about the pieces I'm writing, whether they fit together or not. Um, And I imagine for every writer, it's a little bit different, but In some cases, I'll simply write a small story because it comes to me and I decide to write it down and then I might just tuck it away and see where it fits or if it is a single standing thing on its own. Um, With my first book, The Ever Rumble, I sat down to write them as a set. So I wrote the initial set, which it is a set of interlinking small stories and it turns out to be a novel. Um, So I wrote all of those in one go and then I spent another year and a half moving them around, editing them, writing more to sort of fill in gaps. Um, you know, pulling and changing in all directions to make it fit as a whole. So that I really intended as a set. This book, I had written a lot of flash fictions and a lot of different kind of prose poetry pieces, some of which were published and some of which I had never done anything with. And I thought, yeah, it. they did sort of, they all resonate. You know, there are certain themes that go across the pages. And I started to look at them you know, which I could pull together. And, of course, not everything I've written is in this. It's like, you know, a certain set of stories worked really well. So I pulled them together, and then all the stuff that didn't fit, that's waiting to do something else with it. But, um, yeah, and then I had that that crazy character, the fuddy-duddy editor, who came to life over 10 years ago now, and she's always been sort of sitting with me in the back of my mind. And as I started to think about the arcs and the themes that were in, these stories and how I could weave them together, uh, she just kept coming back at me and kept appearing. And I thought, oh, no, she actually fits in here really well. (laughs) She's a delight. (laughs) She's a bit of fun, isn't she? Yeah, I enjoy her.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And an interesting thing with this collection, um, as you mentioned, some was like flash fiction, some was more like poetry for you, was um, in the places where actually physically on the page, you use the form of the words and white space, as Mm. it were. Is that something that you take into consideration when you are writing a story, or does it just happen? How's that process work?
3: Oh, it comes, you know, it comes as you're writing, um, particularly with a collection. It comes as you're seeing how the stories are on the page together, and then where one story might fit, you know, next to another one, and how it might echo the the rhythms, or the sounds, or even the shape of another one. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of both. I mean, certain stories when I wrote them, I knew how they were going to sit on the page. Uh, if they're a list, or if they're if they have particular fragments that have to go in separated spaces with white all around them, uh, those have always sat that way. And then sometimes I'm you know moved things around uh, in the collection to make them have a certain feel that I was looking for on a particular page. Which is interesting because it it
0: means that as well as um, the stories for the person reading through from front to end, I mean, you know, a collection you can just dive in and out, but if you read from front to finish, you get this physical form as well. Um, I was particularly, the the sled is a short story, Mm -hmm. which is a a beautiful spherical shape, and I was quite intrigued with that one because um, did the words come first
3: or the shape? (laughs) Uh, The words. That actually, that story, the kind of idea of it came first, and then the way I was going to write it came and then the idea of having a part in the middle that was sort of this fragmented memory because a lot of my stories are playing with that idea of memory and the imperfection of it and the way we blur those lines as we're retelling and retelling and retelling. And, uh, yeah, that was that was particularly fun to work with, those the way those words kept recurring uh, in that narrative, yeah. <laughs> and you said that the short form actually can take quite a
0: long time to to write. How much crafting for you goes
3: into each piece of fiction? Well, there's, there's quite a lot, I'd say. I mean, it's like writing poetry. Sometimes it flows right out and pretty much what you start with is what you end up with, with maybe some line ending tweaking or some punctuation changes. Um, so that's quite often the case. But I think the, because I'm an editor anyway, I tend to have that editing eye. And, and what I really like, even in my own work, is walking away from a piece and letting it sit, sometimes for a very long time. Because when you come back, back to it, you inevitably find something that you didn't see the first time, even if you wrote it. So I tend to do that with other things I'm reading, other you know clients' work, or if I'm, if I'm editing a manuscript, or uh, when I'm teaching, I like to sort of read something, walk away, and come back to it. And I do that with my own work quite a bit too, which means I really do think taking your time is helpful. And you don't think you sometimes run risk of overthinking everything? No, I. (laughs) that's funny. No, I I, I don't think I overthink. Um, (laughs) No, that time is just sort of a way to let it simmer a bit. Um, You definitely don't want to over-edit something. It's a really good question because giving it time doesn't mean – editing every time you come back to it you edit and edit and edit it doesn't mean you always are changing something it means you're just letting the voice or the language or um the rhythm kind of come up to the surface every time you're reading it with a different feeling or a different eye but yeah that is a really good question because i think you can work so hard at something and be sort of um you know fixated on the kind of mechanics of it that you then you might lose the gentle poetry of it yeah <laughs> Yeah, lose the feels. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and there is quite
0: a bit of um, technical requirements for a short fiction form. You know, what would your fuddy-duddy editor describe <laughs> as, as, you know, what, and, or you as a judge of flash fiction mm. be looking for technically
3: in a piece? Oh, yeah. I was just asked that recently because I'm judging a couple competitions coming up, actually. Um I think the thing that I really love is when the very first thing that strikes you is the creativity on the page, you know, the idea that the mind and sort of the heart are both really at work in a piece of writing. Um, and that is evident if you find a piece that is, for example, coming back to your earlier question, if it's over edited, if it's over structured, if it's sort of overly ponderous in the methodology, that becomes really clear. So something that has a kind of a sense of freedom on the page and that creative spirit that is sort of drifting throughout, I, I think that's really exciting to see. Certainly something that is experimental and trying something new. You know, if there are flaws with commas, that doesn't really matter, even though, I of course, I love grammar and punctuation and all that. But those kinds of things matter far less in a competition than, you know, what's really at the heart of the piece and how much the writer is pushing to explore. Because, I mean, that's what this form is all about, the hybrid small fiction form is all about seeing what you can do with it, what's coming next. And is that what drew
0: you? Because you write a lot of flash Mm. fiction yourself. You know, what drew you to this particular form of writing and creative expression?
3: Yeah, definitely. The idea of the creativity that I can apply on just one page of writing is really exciting. Um, But I also really started writing it in earnest when I spent a year thinking that what I wanted to do was set a goal for myself where I would write a story a week for one year. Which I did. And that was really fun because what I found was to write a story a week, I I had to have that kind of focus. So that compressed story really appealed. I mean, I I didn't need to write 10,000 words a a week, but what I needed to write was something that was fully realized. So I ended up writing flash fictions for a year. And then I uh, launched a site with a friend of mine, a high school friend who's also a writing instructor, in fact. And that ended up being this huge online flash fiction community um, where People wrote a story a week for a year, and it was a whole community of writers. So that was a lot of fun, and it it involved both the creative inspiration but also that discipline, that Mm -hmm. discipline of writing every week and keeping a focus and keep coming back to things you've learned in previous weeks, applying them, reworking them, all of that, which I think is really fun. Keeping that momentum, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And
0: which segues quite nicely to and you – teach now mm. um, in creative writing online. And mm-hmm. I've, I think recall reading on your website that, you know, one of the things is just this idea of 250 words a week and yeah. just keeping that going,
3: you know. Um, tell us a bit more about your your teaching. Yeah, and actually it, it's really fun because it came out of that original project from 10 years back. And uh, I've been wanting to do it for a while, but I was traveling a lot. So I really need to be in a place where I can be connected All the time where I can be reading and talking to students. So I set up that course uh, when I arrived in Dunedin and when I settled here. And um, it's a course where the students write every week and the idea and then they get feedback from me every week and it's pretty relentless and some of the students in there they've actually made the analogy it's a little bit like going to the gym and exercising because you're constantly exercising and you feel like sometimes you don't want to do it but when you get through it you feel really good about what you did <laughs> because it's inspiring and mm-hmm. one story begets another begets another and you know it's a kind of a cycle that you get into mm-hmm. and it helps build ideas it helps build structure it helps build the discipline i mean the writing muscle can be trained and can be worked on and i really like it that one of my students came up with that idea because i think it really fits and and because it's a class and we meet in zoom because we started in 2020 as soon as i started the class in january soon after that we went into lockdown Mm -hmm. so it became an online zoom session kind of a class and um It's kept going because uh, it's really nice for people to meet in that regular way as a group and they share work with each other and uh, we're constantly looking at, you know, what you can do in 250 words in a week. And not everybody in there is writing flash fiction. That's also interesting. Mm -hmm. Some are writing poetry, some are writing novels or memoir, but they bring every week just a small segment that we really dig into and analyze. So you're kind of like their
0: personal trainer, (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's so. like having a personal trainer, <laughs> accountability. Oh, you're actually right. I never thought of that. Yeah, maybe we all need one. I don't know. Yeah, but. Speaking of, you know, using that, keeping using that metaphor with muscle yeah. building.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely. I didn't think of it that way, but you're right. There's something to it, just that kind of encouragement. And uh, it's funny also, too, because just recently I was talking to someone about the fuddy-duddy editor, and I think she's a little bit like that, too. She's the person that, you know, you hear inside your head who – sometimes is really discouraging. She's the one who's going to call you on your nonsense. She's going to say, that doesn't work at all. Don't even go there. Don't even try that. And that's that side, that voice inside that sometimes holds us back, but also has some reasonable reasons to doubt what you're doing. <laughs> uh, but she's also the one who encourages you. Mm-hmm. You know, She's the one who says, yeah, push it harder, go further, and see what you can do. <laughs> and so she's that voice that kind of, I think, talks to me, but also maybe talks to everybody. Everybody <laughs> has that voice. Yes. Or different voices, yes, <laughs>
0: multiple voices, depending on the frame of mind yeah, at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now she is this beautiful theme that threads its way through it, but has an entire chapter devoted to herself in the middle, which is great. Um, but in the other side of Better, you do explore um, a lot of ground. You know, is this one of the advantages of short fiction, um, or is it a, a curse in a way as well? Because you know, what do you choose from when you've got so many ideas?
3: Yeah, I think you have to. Choo- I mean, you can tell, you can tell when somebody has just pulled together uh, a lot of pieces that don't necessarily fit. Um, but if you're trying to choose them according to themes and story arcs and connections and that sort of thing, then you can start to see, even in your own writing, what kind what kinds of things fit together. Um, that's one of the things I really like with anthology editing or when I work as an editor on someone else's collections because a lot of that conversation is around what fits, what doesn't fit. And sometimes we'll look at, let's say, a poetry collection. You know, you'll look at the pieces that actually all stream together. Sometimes you'll rearrange them and you'll realize that this set that's later actually could come earlier and establish a different kind of a voice or approach or rhythm. So I really like that idea that you know, a certain set has to fit together. Um, even if it is a little bit all over the place, there have to be reasons for it. And, um, that's a big challenge. It's a big challenge in any kind of a anthology or collection. So that must have been, um,
0: one of the exciting things then about building your works together to, to find that
3: narrative arc, to find that journey that you take people through. Yeah, it is true. And it's really fun in that way. And, um, And that's also funny, too, and you probably get this as well. Sometimes the pieces that you think, you know, might not fit as well, other people will read them, and they'll be some of their favorites. Mm. So when I was going through drafts of this and working with people who were reading it, You know, I ended up with a lot of feedback about which pieces work and which pieces don't work or where they have to go. And, you know, that's that kind of external eye that really helps with your own work as well. Mm. So
0: um, just to finish up then, you know, what's um, the one key bit of advice you'd give to someone who is thinking about writing flash fiction?
3: Oh, one key bit of advice. That's really tricky. Um, Oh, I like mm. mean questions. Mm. (laughs) I think um, sit down and start to write and see where it takes you. And see if you can actually, you know, start with a page, I would say, if you're really trying to write a compressed piece. And see where you go in a page. And once you get that page and you have some kind of narrative arc, cut it in half. (laughs) See what happens. It's a really hard thing to do. Or if you really want to try a hand and you're short on time, take something you've already written, anything, nonfiction, fiction, anything, and try to trim it by 50%. You'll be amazed at what you can do and what comes out on the other side. I think I might have to
0: try that. (laughs) It's really fun. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for coming on the show today and talking about um, flash fiction and your collection, The Other Side of Better. Um, It's been great talking. Thank you so much, Mandy. I loved it. Really appreciate it. That is our show for January. Thank you for listening in. And also thank you to my guests, Bronwyn Wiley-Gibb and Michelle Alvey. I hope you have enjoyed some great summer reading and have plenty more to look forward to. And join us again next month for another fun hour in the world of books. Until then, happy reading. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On Air.